0: Hello, I'm Diana Lanham, your host for My Best Sell. Today's guest is Victoria Peltier. Victoria is a 20-plus year corporate executive, a board director, a number one best-selling author, and a professional public speaker. Victoria is going to be sharing her story of how she overcame adversity and became unstoppable. Please welcome my guest, Victoria Peltier. Thank you so much for flying all the way from Miami to come all the way out here. And uh, I apologize that you landed on a very cold, very rainy Seattle day.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for having me, and it's a welcome break from weather back home.
0: Well, we know from uh, my intro that you are a 20-plus year C-suite um, officer and executive, and uh, you're a number one uh Best selling author and you have more books to come. So we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. One of the things that I was very intrigued about your experience and is the fact that you were a chief operating officer, a COO, at twenty four. That's astonishing. But why don't you talk to us about that? Because that's that's a huge achievement.
1: Thank you for saying so. It's it's actually a result of the fact that I have 30 plus years of experience in the corporate world. I started working at age 11.
0: I remember that. Yes,
1: uh, In a hair salon doing everything but the actual hair cutting styling. Uh, And then by 14, I was already the assistant manager at a shoe store that I worked at while in school. I graduated high school at 16 and went to university and started working in a bank. And within six months, I'd been promoted within there to a leadership role. And although I had aspirations of being a lawyer, I knew I wanted to do that since I was a very young child, I realized how much I loved the corporate world and much more so how much I loved leading people and the complexities of business. And I continued down that path ever since and never went to law school.
0: So how are you working at 11 years old in a hair salon?
1: Well, uh... So I've always been driven to work and succeed, and I remember my my mother in particular saying to me at one point, Tori, you need to do better than us. And she meant both vocationally and socioeconomically. And although I never had to worry about food insecurity and whatnot, but if there was anything extra that I wanted, I needed to buy it for myself. And my mom had a great relationship with the owner of the hair salon because that's where she went and they had a need, and I was interested, and I hit my height, I'm five foot eight, by the time I was 11 years old. Aww. So everyone thought I was much older, and so I enjoyed it. So no one forced me into it, it was something I really wanted for myself. It was and a family
0: thing too. Very much so. Yeah, we've we, all of my sisters and brothers, we've done things like that too, yeah. So you were very lucky that you had that opportunity, because yes. not everybody has that, right? Yes. And, and then at 14, you were working in a shoe store?
1: <laughs> yeah so I shifted to I wanted to work and you know where most of my friends were hanging out at a mall, mm-hmm. I think and uh, and so I got a job working in a shoe store. I've always been a pretty big shoe fan
0: yeah. uh,
1: and I was one of their top sales people within the store and so the manager promoted me to assistant manager and it was a very interesting experience because at 14 I was leading people who were 20 people uh, 20 years plus my senior. Yeah.
0: So talk to me about um, how you grew up. I know you grew up in Canada. You were born in Canada. So talk to me about how you grew up and what uh, your family was like.
1: So this for me, I'll I'll tell you, Diana, I wasn't as open about sharing uh, my circumstance uh, for many years or or maybe just in in a smaller setting. And now it's one of the things I stand on stages and talk about publicly. And it's because I realized people were having conversations about how I'd achieved what I'd achieved from a career perspective, that I was doing a disservice without talking about my why.
0: Authentic. Oh no, that is so important, right?
1: And so for me, my childhood was incredibly wrought with trauma and abuse. I, uh, I'm born to a drug-addicted teenager who was exceptionally abusive to me. Julie is her name. And so I spent the first number of years with Julie who... Um, You know, moments of fit and rage would um, extremely abuse me. I was pushed upstairs, downstairs. Your audience might see a droopy eye sometimes. That's a result of having a cigarette in my eye, for which I wore a patch four months um, when Mm -hmm. I was three. And Julie met um, the couple that would later become my adoptive parents um, in a bar. Uh, My mom was a writer for a Canadian music magazine and so regularly in bars. And uh, and so they um, became friends. And after a number of incidents, um, she would call the woman that later became my mom and for to take me for a period of time. And so I remember the last words I heard from Julie while I remained in her care, which was, come and get her before I kill her. And those were the last words before the couple that would eventually become my adoptive um, family. Uh, those were the last words I heard before they came and got me. And... It was after that incident, my mom and for me, your family are those that raise you, and yes, so my mom yeah. is the woman who, who raised me, and Julie is the one who gave birth to me, and uh, so my mom approached Julie and said, "We would really like to take her from you. We want to give her a very different life." And so the most self selfless thing Julie could do was agree, yeah. and so I'm very fortunate to that see, she did that for you. That she did that. She for did me. something for you. And did you have siblings? siblings? No. So th- thankfully. Um, no one yeah. else needed to endure that, but I did have a an extended family. Um, Julie was one of four girls, uh, and uh, but none of that family wanted to or step in or whatnot. I was
0: going to ask, did they didn't step in for you? No, no. So well, that was mom, a, that was a miracle that your mother made friends with those people and that they they understood the need. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: otherwise I think the alternative I could have ended up and I was in the child welfare system. I was removed from Julia a number, number of times. So I think I could have remained in the child welfare system Yeah, and who knows where I would have ended, ended yeah, up. Yeah. Cause
0: that can be crushing. We all know that, that the foster system and welfare, that's, it's, right. it's right. very damaging for children.
1: So for my mom that, you know, that phrase, um, when she said to me, you know, you need to do better than us. I, and I think I was 11 at the time, uh, I'll tell you, Diane. I don't think she ever needed to utter those words to me because the circumstance and my biology being born into Julie's world. And then my parents, although very loving and no more abuse, and my mom was an incredible human who did much to help this trouble scar- scarred girl. Um, it was a lower socioeconomic home. Uh, my dad was a janitor, she was a secretary, but it was a combination of those things, biology and circumstance that made me want to be better than either of those things. yeah. And so that's where my drive comes from. That's why I'm consistently pushing to be a better version of myself um, each and every day.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? It's, It's not just that you were trying to overcome your childhood. You clearly are a very, very intelligent woman. And being focused, having that laser focus and that drive Yes, when you have circumstances that you're overcoming, that does give you a little, you know, impetus to do that. But you also—it's something in your DNA, and it's organic. You know, you have it; you were born with it, and and it's a gift. It's always a gift when people naturally have grit.
1: Yeah, I um I do believe, you know, this whole nature nurture conversation um, that there is something innately in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Fight or flight. Mm-hmm. I am a fighter. Yeah, uh, and so it's funny because I sign a lot of my social media um, posts off with "unstoppable," and the other is "no excuses," and that's just innate in yeah. who I am. And I'm going to drive hard and not let anything, you know, get in my way. Yes, obstacles and challenges will come, yeah, but I'm going to find a way to move through them.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to stop for a second and just say, um, you have a sign to you that is just so, like, um, you move through. Chaos and problems, you get it done right, and it's funny because when I hear you talking about that, your drive and you're basically a force of nature. I've also had an opportunity to meet the soft, gooey side, right? <laughs> and because it's yeah. there, right? And um, I actually like that. I like that. You know, as as a woman, as a mom, as a wife, you know, um, you have such a, a nice uh, emotional IQ as well. It's a really nice combo to have. To have that drive. And also to have the, the emotional soft skills, right? Not everybody has that. It's usually one or the other. So you're very lucky there. Um, I do have to say, it, it is amazing that you survived. And um, I'm just, I didn't know that's part of the story. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. So, And moving forward. So I can see why you started early. And you were eager to basically just start living and start moving out of your situation. Right. And so when you got to, um, when you were the, um, COO at 24, um, did you have, did did your past cause problems for you? Like when you were dealing with people and your relationships in the company, did you find that you were having, cause I don't know, did you get therapy for all that? The, the trauma that you had?
1: No, I didn't. My mom, I will attribute um, to spending a significant amount of time with me. I am incredibly resilient, uh, but I wouldn't say I've always had the most healthy way of being resilient. I was very good at building walls around me. Mm -hmm. I remember shortly after my mom adopting me, you know walking th- pa- with her on the street past a construction site and you know someone I've always had like these these curls and much more red when I was little Shirley Temple like and yeah. so, so there was a construction worker who said well, aren't you the cutest little thing and I turned to him and, and I swore and I'm like what the f are you looking at like I was just this hardened child and so my mom was very good at sitting me down um and Talking for hours and it drove me insane especially as a teenager. Yeah, and yeah. she's my nickname for my mom was Tori And she's like Tori we need to understand. Why are you thinking? Why are you acting out this way? And it drove me nuts But I actually use that now when I think about the resilience I have one of this sort of multi-step journey I have when things come my way is about being incredibly self-reflective and self-aware around what's the, what's the genesis, what's the root behind yeah. the emotion or the feeling that I'm having. So that was my um, therapy. Um, although I advocate for people if they need to go and see a, a professional, absolutely do. And yeah. for one of my two children, that's been definitely the case, uh, but that was my therapy. But to your other question over how um, did that manifest or show up in the workplace, it did. You. Compliment me now on this great blend of like the EQIQ. And I always had it. However, I didn't show it. So when I showed up at 24 years old, a brand new mother, the only female executive, and the youngest by at least two decades, I felt I needed to show up in a very particular way. Not to mention the fact that I harbored some fear and insecurity. um, And I didn't want anyone to know that I was vulnerable, that I was emotional, and that I had this past. So I showed up. All business, all the time, with this mask that I wore. I'm, I am very A-type, and I want to get to like yeah, part of the I've agenda. Noticed, I've noticed that, <laughs> um, and you know, so I'd walk into a meeting, and it was like we're going to go right into the agenda. Um, the type of business I was in um, was what's called business process outsourcing (BPO) for short. So basically, companies outsource their work to another company, and. Um, the margins are lower, they do that to save money, and so I, in being successful, had to learn how to manage the business very effectively and performance manage people, mm-hmm. uh, do reorganizations if necessary. And I learned a couple of years into my executive um, role that I nicknamed was the Iron Maiden. Oh, I was like like that is it is not who I am. And I realized that it was because I was showing up without any vulnerability with very little emotion. I would go home at night and cry and talk about my day. I am a highly emotional individual, but I wasn't gonna let any, anyone yeah. in the workplace see that. Yeah. I didn't want anyone to question my seat at the table because I was young, because I was a woman.
0: That's what I was gonna ask you about. Do you think that, because I actually had, um, I was a director very young. I was just in from 21 to 24. And I was constantly feeling like I had to prove that I had the right to be there, I had the experience to be there, I was chosen to be there. And I, was, but I was also working with people that were twenty years older than me, you know, ten to twenty years older than me. So I always just felt like I was proving that I could have that seat at the table, and I was, I was a peer, right? And so I was very businesslike all the time as well. It was, it's just I felt like that's what I had to be. Like I had to, I wanted to be older, and so I felt like I had to act older. And I realized you know, several years in that I was there because I had the skills and I had the knowledge and that's the reason I was there. So I, I didn't have to go through all of those kind of, you know, uh, machinations to make people like me and feel like I was uh, professional. I was already there, but I don't think that you know that when you're younger. You and,
1: I, and I will say that was an incredibly large stretch role for me. To that point, I'd been leading operations and now in that role, I had everything except for finance reporting to me. So there was still a lot of learning. I I also don't love the phrase imposter syndrome, but that's probably the most appropriate way to like describe what I was feeling at that point.
0: I'm actually, I'm a big believer in imposter syndrome. There are so many people have that and Mm -hmm. women definitely have it more than men. Um, but it's, it's just a whole thing. And it's, it's what we put on ourselves, you know, half the more than half the time, nobody's thinking, that you don't have a right to be there, right? But women have a tendency yeah. to do that as well, too. So, Well, so talk to me, because uh, you were saying that when you showed up with your age and a new mother. So talk to me about your children and your relationships. When did you get married?
1: Oh, I've done everything very early, it seems. Uh, so I met my ex-wife. Um, I came out at 14 um, as bisexual. I tend to just use the word queer today, meaning I'm not straight. Um, So I came out at 14, uh, although I had mostly boyfriends, but I met my wife when I was 22, and she was 35. Wow. It's a big age difference, but again, I prefer maturity. I felt I had a lot of years behind my 22-year-old belt at that point, and um, my wife had been married previously, so actually I became a stepmother at 22 to a 10-year-old. Oh, wow. So that was my first foray into motherhood. Yeah. Uh, but I was clear with her, Dee is, uh, was her name, she's passed away, um, and we can certainly talk about that later, um, uh, that I always wanted to be a mother, biologically have my own children, given that I had no biological family around yeah. me. Yeah. And uh, so she's like, great, let's do this. Um, and I jokingly say that's like the stereotypical lesbian thing to do. There's a joke that, you know, what do lesbians do on their second date? Like grab the U-Haul and their cats and move in together. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we were, you know, somewhat stereotypical in that way and so we just moved very quickly and uh, we found a donor, he's known to us, uh, and I got pregnant very quickly. So I gave birth to my older son, his name is Zoe, um, my Viking. He currently looks like one, my hair I know color, I but um, he's got a bright red, like yeah. big, big red beard.
0: Yeah,
1: um, And so he's 23 years old and I wanted to have another. Uh, our donor had moved out of town, so we um, were not able to use him. So we ended up going with an anonymous donor. Um, my ex-wife was Portuguese. Uh, so Jordan, my younger one's donor is Portuguese, was totally the male version of her, um, which was really important to her. Um, he was probably my second choice, which is weird because it's like online dating for sperms, um, going through the process. But uh, So I found Jordan's donor and then she was born. So she's four years um, younger, 19. And I'm going to say I use um, different pronouns. Jordan was born female, and Jordan has made the decision in the last year to transition to male. So when I describe Jordan as a child, um, I will use she, her pronouns, and then moving forward as Jordan is now presenting and transitioning towards male to say he
0: and him. Okay. All right. And I will be cognizant of that as well. So
1: I slip. I've asked Jordan to make sure you give me grace. I said for 18 years, you were my daughter. I said in this last year, you're now my son. So if I slip up sometimes, um, again, just give me some grace.
0: Yeah. So do you... Can I unpack that a little bit? Okay. So did you have, so you said you came out at 14. So by the time that you were, and you got married at 22? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So by the time that you were 22, you had other um, lesbian relationships? Uh, Non-long
1: term. I'd had a long term, like three and a half year relationship with a man. And then I dated many women. uh, And then Dee was my first long term female relationship.
0: Yeah. And you said that she passed away?
1: Yes. Uh, so she and I were together for 11 years, uh, and um, her first bout with cancer was actually when I was seven weeks pregnant with Jordan, we found out. Uh, so I was released from the, same, uh, from the hospital the same day I gave birth to Jordan because she was having chemo that day, so I oh could drive wow. us home. Uh, and so it was a difficult period. However, she beat that successfully. Um, I made the decision to, to leave our marriage uh, after 11 years, and within a few months of separating, we found out her cancer had returned. I Although she was somewhat asymptomatic for the first few few years of that, um, she passed away four years after we separated. The last year, which was a very significant decline, so it'll be it. We just passed the ten year mark since she passed away.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: It um, it was tough. I mean, she was she passed away on what would have been our 15 year anniversary of when we were together. Yeah. Um, even though she wasn't even supposed to make it like a day, so I sort of feel yeah. I'm not a, really a spiritual person. Um, but she wasn't supposed to make it past the weekend um, when I brought the kids to see what they thought was going to be the last time they were seeing their mama. Yeah. Um, and uh, and she hung on. and and for But the, for the kids, incredibly difficult. I mean, they were yeah. 13 and 9 um, when she passed away. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about therapy, I actually immediately had my, my own children in therapy for grief counseling and learning how to process the death of a
0: parent. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know that, because uh, we had chatted about this too, about... Um, When you were working, you were one of very few females working. Not only were you um, a younger chief executive, but you were also one of very few females. You were um, a young mother dealing with that. You were dealing with a spouse who had cancer. And you were also, um, were you out at work? Did people know that um, you had a wife?
1: Yeah. I was, uh, I've always been relatively out, but not as public as I am now. I think of like one employer I worked for a number of years ago, I was on their webpage as one of their out executives. Uh, But anyone who worked closely with me, um, I'm very much about being authentic and transparent. So for all of my colleagues, they were aware, D came to, you know, the holiday parties and that sort of thing. I was cautious about some of my clients. And even that's changed over the years. I embrace, this is who I yeah. am. I mean, I'm a bit, fairly public. If you wanna Google me, that's probably one of the things that's gonna come up. Yeah. And I've made decisions not to work with clients who wouldn't support yeah. myself or or I yeah. you know, see some challenges around their own um, uh, diversity uh, stance. And so um, I was proud to, to bring her and, um, and it was a big part of who I am. And going back to the ability for me as a, a mom, to do what I was doing. I actually, even to this day, uh, really acknowledge Dee and her support of me and my career uh, to help me, sort of in the nascent stages of me being an executive. I traveled pretty significantly and, uh, you know, upwards at some points to like 80% of the time. Wow. And so she bore a majority of the household duties. We had some help at home, definitely. Uh, but she was the one who definitely supported and, and enabled me to do what I needed to do from yeah. a career perspective.
0: Oh, absolutely. Especially at that level. When you're in the C-suite, the amount of time that you spend in the office and traveling, it is very hard to be a mother well, or a father, too, unless you have a partner at home that's, that's basically... Staying yeah, home and taking the care one of thing I'll say,
1: Diana, though, that, that has really bothered me uh, is I made a decision not to take maternity leave after I gave birth um, to Jordan. Really? Uh, now, I so hold on. I'm a bit of a do as I say, not as I do. When I talk to my team, you yeah. do what you need to do um, as a parent. It was my choice, my choice, uh, and so Jordan came a week early, and um, we were in the middle of a massive like transformation happening, um, you know, at work. As I said, I was released from the hospital the same day everyone was asleep, and I hopped online, and people gave me all kinds of help for, for doing that. I'm not sure that a father, now I get it. Physically, I, I did give birth, and so there's differences there, but then when I returned to the office a couple of weeks later, like the flack that I got from people. Again, my male counterparts, who spouses had, had children, weren't receiving the same kind of um, pushback that I was, which I thought was unfair.
0: I get that, yeah. Cause you know I I'm. There is definitely a perception, if you're not home with your newborn child, that you're not being a good mom. And not just from from, I mean it's from men and women, right? But if you're if you're going full hell full hell at your career basically, and you're in the C-suite you don't have a lot of time. I mean, you're making decisions for the company and you're usually managing several teams, right? And even if you're staying at home and on that maternity leave, you're going to take calls and you're going to look at your phone, right? It's just a different level of business. But I I can imagine how hard that would have been by people like probably saying comments or like who's watching the baby and where's the baby and things like that. Well, it is a little, it is unfair. And it's very one-sided. However,
1: you make trade offs, mm-hmm. and so I do recall that you know I would try to leave the office to be home and have dinner with my family, and then once everyone went to bed, I just hopped back online for a couple of hours. Yeah. Like there's a so people will often ask like how do you have or do it all, and so you 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 don't you like you're, you're there's constant compromise, mm-hmm. and you can have all, just maybe not all at the same time. Yeah, but I also feel like I made the right choices for the support of our family. I was a primary earner in our in our household, but also I made pretty important decisions when it mattered. And when Dee died, um, I had a job I loved. I was working in New York and I went back and forth between Toronto and New York because we were divorced and shared custody of the children. And, but I traveled 15 to 18 business days a month. Wow. And Dee had the children whenever yeah. you know I was traveling and then after she passed with no family, I needed to make a decision. And so I quit a job I loved. Mm-hmm to move to one that had less travel and would keep them based, because I debated, do I move them to New York where my job was? But then that created a whole other upheaval for them after having just lost a parent. Yeah. And so that was the right decision for my family at that time. So yes, yeah. I didn't take maternity leave after I had Jordan, yeah. but I also feel like I made the right decision at the right time. Yeah. And then Dee used to coach our kids' hockey teams, um, and I played hockey as well. Because That's she, so Canadian. Good Canadian That's girl. so Canadian, yeah. Um, and <laughs> so she used to coach the kids' hockey teams, and so I started to do that. Oh, as a way to like yeah. step in and be much more evolved. You know, I think Jordan at times is like, mommy didn't spend enough time with me. I'm like, well, let me just remind you that 20 hours a week driving to and from the hockey arenas for both practice. That and, counts. Uh, that counts. Yeah.
0: Did <laughs> yeah. you like that? Did you like being a coach?
1: Uh, I did. I did. It's much like in business. A yeah. Part I, I was going to say I, it's what kind of what, like, what you're doing you're during the coaching. day. What I didn't like were the parents. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, who at some point yes it was a competitive team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know they they were not going to, you know, the women's version of, you know, the the NHL. Uh and so that that's the aspect I didn't yeah. love uh, as But much. most
0: coaches say that. They say we love I love the kids. I love the sport. I love developing and growing these little brains and bodies and stuff, but dealing with the parents is the worst aspect of it. Yeah. yeah. But that's everywhere. Yeah, you know,
1: although much like in business, I asked for help because I didn't I actually didn't grow up playing hockey. I started playing in my early 20s Mm. Uh, and I learned how to play the game well, but I still had some fundamentals, not of the game, but um, there were some things that were missing. So I made sure um, at some point I was asked to be the head coach. I was like, um, okay. Um, but of course I, you were. But I That's just
0: how your church But I didn't was. actually,
1: so where I lacked, I didn't know how to run our practices that well. Yeah. And so I just made sure that I found other people to Kevin like to be the assistant coaches or some of the parents who could come and help
0: run the practices for me. Yeah. It's because you know how to manage people and you get stuff done, right? And usually they want, people want to put that person in a leadership role because they know that you can manage it and, and, and things aren't going to fall through the cracks, right? But it is hard when you don't necessarily know all the mechanics of the job that you're the yes. head coach of, yeah, yeah. And so you played hockey too? Uh, yeah. And you have all your teeth? <laughs> yes. And you have all your beautiful teeth? Yes. Yeah,
1: although I, the funny story is uh, I had way more injuries once I switched to playing in a women's-only league than when I used to play coed. Really? <sighs> Women are brutal. Really? Uh, yes. But that just, like, I thrived. I loved. And so I played... <laughs> probably about three times a week when I could and if I was in town so that was my cardio while I was in a you know um, working out in the in the gym I just I really loved it the team team yeah. dynamics and it is the one thing that I'd say that I stuck with I don't generally like to do things that I don't perform well at but that was my ex- I know shocker right um, <laughs> I know. but that was my exception because I could skate I've always been able to be a good skater but I had never really been out there you know with stick in hand so I had to learn those things But Dee played with me. She was the reason I really got into it. And I loved the dynamics on on the ice. And so I stuck with it so that I was able to play um, at sort of the highest um, recreational level to, like, the lowest level of competitive. It was amazing.
0: And how great that your whole family was involved with it. You know, that's kind of the dream, right? You want to get involved with something that your kid does. And if your partner's doing it, too, and all the kids were doing it, that was kind of, yeah, that's kind of a nice thing. It's Mm. a dream. But... How, how did you move forward after Dee died? I mean, you must have been in such, under such incredible pressure.
1: It was, um, it was tough it, uh, on a multitude of fronts. I mean, I, my primary focus was on my children and making yeah. sure that they were getting the support that they needed. Um, and I knew I was going to have to make a, a, a job change. Uh, I was working with American Express at the time, and um, the division that I was running had just gone through um, a a transaction, and I was locked in as an executive, and so it was very difficult for me to try and change roles. So I ultimately needed to leave the company. And so uh, I then had to go through that and then started a new company. And the first, uh, still as an executive, but, you know, as you're onboarding and ramping up. Oh, yeah, the ramp up
0: is tough. Yeah, so it's twenty four seven. I was
1: dealing with that and so some of my closest friends, so I believe in chosen family. Yeah. And they're the ones who stepped in to help me, uh, as you know, I couldn't always be home at six o'clock yeah. you know for dinner. And so I had an army around me that were incredible in supporting
0: yeah. me. That's where the saying it takes a village comes comes from. It is very hard to be all things to all people. And especially if you do have a career and you're a single parent, to make especially if you love your job and you love what you're doing and you want to give, you know, everything that you need to do that, but you can't because you also want to take care of your children and you want to be there. It's then also because they lost, already lost a parent. So it's not just a normal single parent. You're trying to, you know, to do that, but you're also um, leading them through grief as well. Right. So uh, that's pretty amazing. And that you kind of, well, you actually remained intact and you kept growing and you, and you got your career back on track too. So I just want to, I was a single mom and I know what it takes to do that. And it was very, very hard. There were times where I just was like, I didn't go to sleep because if I was going to get my work done, it was after when the kids, you know, my daughter went to sleep and everything else was done and you just make those choices. So, uh, very brave, I think. So, so, so keep, uh, lead us through what, what happened after that?
1: Well, so one of the greatest things that happened out of Dee's death um, and the circumstance around that is I took my children. Um Dee passed away at the end of October. And, and what th- year was this? Um ten years ago now. Ten years ago. Okay. Uh in so 2013. Mm-hmm. And uh I thought, what am I gonna do for Christmas? This is gonna be so difficult with her passing so close oh, to the yeah. Christmas holidays. And uh so I said, I need to get them out of this physical environment. Let's do something different. And I've never not been at home. Uh in uh, at Christmas time, let alone summer warm. But uh, I went to the Dominican Republic. I took them away. I thought, let's do, do something totally different. So we flew down there, and uh, that's where I met my now husband, Danny, uh, really? there. Yeah. And uh, so we'd seen each other at the gym, although he's super shy, so I needed to initiate the conversation. Um, he was sitting in front of me in the pool with his feet in the water. Jordan was swimming. And after a couple of days of no adult conversation, I'm like, I guess I just need to do this. So I went and I got a drink and I came back and I said, hi, do you speak English? Because um, there was a lot of Europeans, uh, mostly Italians at this resort. And he was very tanned. So I assumed was assuming he was Italian. <laughs> and then I hear this thick French Canadian accent. And, uh, and so Danny and I started talking. And I really wasn't looking to date at that point for all the reasons I just stated around, focusing on my children, trying to figure out a new job, et cetera. Uh, and uh, Jordan found out that um, he was by himself at Christmas time and invited him to join us for dinner. So Jordan will say that she got us together. Yes. That you know, Not that there was any you know attraction or interest or great conversation, um, but it happened so organically that my both kids welcomed him yeah, into our family. Yeah, so it wasn't strange, yeah. And so we did long distance for a very short period of time and he gave up a 25-year career to move uh, in with us, adopted my kids and has been, you know, amazing father and partner to me and makes my life possible in terms of still being an executive and Mm -hmm. doing all the things for me, being my sounding board, even though he doesn't come from the corporate world, uh, and being an amazing dad to my kids.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to ask an obvious question. I'm sure you get asked it a lot, right? (laughs) Okay and I hate it because I, I think it's very small-minded, but I'm going to ask. So was there any transition for your children going from um, living in a household with two moms to now that you're going into a household where you're now living with a man, right? Were there, was there Was there any sort of transition for them or I'm sure. Did you, people ask you questions at work? I mean, but you're queer. You came out as queer. It wasn't like you were a lesbian and now you're within a heterosexual relationship. So to me that, that you've already established that that's...
1: Mostly, although people make assumptions. So yeah. just because I is was...
0: That, is that too weird of a question for you? No, no, okay. no, no, okay. no,
1: not at all. I, um, so people made it, make assumptions. So because I was married to a woman, assumed I was a lesbian and so the conversation turned to well did you change back like yeah and I was like no so no like, teams. Uh, I'm like yeah. no no I haven't uh and for my children um it I, I'm sure that from some of their friends they probably heard things but I don't I didn't find they had a difficult time adjusting and I think it's because I mean, Dee and I had an amazing friend group that were so diverse. In fact, yeah. we moved to the suburbs north of Toronto where it was a predominantly straight community. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the only same-sex couple that were living there and most of our friends became our neighbors, so they mm. were very used to um, you know, heterosexual like couples and all around us. And, um, and they knew that I had dated men before too, so for them it also wasn't like a shift in mindset. Oh, I see. Uh, so it seemed f- fairly easy. Uh, for them um, quite honestly the the bigger adjustment was Danny's um, much better at um, I'll say being a little bit more strict than I am which the the, the adjust and it's it's not it's not even that it's strict I think it's more so that he's very good at like being really clear on the rules and following through and I tend to I'm very good at work at doing the same but when it comes to my children I tend to like flex a little bit more and uh, so they needed to adjust to just some different parenting styles.
0: Oh, I love that. So tell me again, how long have you guys been married? So we,
1: 10 years, in a couple weeks, it'll be 10 years since we first met. Yeah. Uh, seven years since we, seven and a half years since we got married.
0: Wow. And I love that you went all the way to the Dominican Republic and you met another Canadian. Isn't that <laughs> wild? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, so he's from Quebec, right? Yes. Quebec. Quebec City, yes, yes, which yeah. is a
1: very, very French. And most people automatically assume Montreal. Uh, which is very bilingual city. Uh, Quebec City is very, very French, and yeah. you'll find fewer people that are completely fluent in English. Okay.
0: And you were born in Calgary. Did I get that right?
1: No, I have. I, Ottawa?
0: Ottawa, I'm sorry. And then my parents Calgary, moved Ottawa.
1: to Calgary after they adopted me. Oh, okay. And okay. then I got relocated to Toronto. Okay.
0: And so when did you. Well, you came to the States for work, mm-hmm. but and now you're in Miami, yeah. right? So. How, when did you come here and how, was it hard for you to uh, leave Canada and, and stay in the States?
1: I, um, so I got relocated the first time with work okay. in 2006 to New York. Uh, and so I've been three times now relocated. I didn't think I'd move to Miami full time. Uh, I'm one of the thousands of New Yorkers that migrated somehow there during COVID. Uh, I insisted that after multiple staycations that didn't work well in New York, um, I needed to physically leave the state and go somewhere warm. Yeah. So I thought I was just gonna potentially buy a winter place, but fell in love with our house. um, So we decided to make that full time and subsequently it's been amazing. The chosen family bit is a big part of what keeps me so happy because we've got this amazing unit um, of people that are our family there. uh, And um, not having to shovel snow is pretty nice
0: too. Yeah, I can imagine. I didn't realize that both your children still live in Canada.
1: They're adults. Huh? Jordan, Jordan yeah. moved with us to New York yeah. when I got relocated um, back in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, and went, did homeschooling in New York and then finished high school in Miami, in Miami oh, Beach. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then Jordan decided to take time off uh, and move in with his older brother. Uh, so they've been living in Ottawa, but um, in two weeks time, Jordan will be moving back to Toronto, which is where he grew up and has lots of friends.
0: Yeah. That's great. Well, so that kind of moves us forward to where you're at now, right? And I know that um, you've written a book and you have two more books that you're going to, that are very close to being finished, correct? Yes. Yes. And you're also um, now doing public speaking. I don't know now, because how long have you been doing that?
1: Speaking for 20 years, the last 10 of which have been professionally.
0: As an executive, you're going to be asked to speak anyways, you know, they're going to have you at conferences and things like exactly. that. When did you move like past just doing it for work? And then now you're, you know, people are calling you and saying, we want you to come and talk to our audience about more personal things.
1: You're right. My job is really what required me to be standing on stages, speaking whether it was at conferences to represent not only our company, but maybe more broadly the industry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I spent a lot of time talking internally as well. Uh, Whether it was to like our new incoming interns that were um, starting at the company, um, but also with a lot of our employee resource groups, both for women and LGBT, and where things like shifted almost seismically for me was through some of the conversations I had with the women's um, resource groups. And so International Women's Day would be, and month would be kind of my busiest month going and talking to, in our different offices, our women's group. And uh, many times it would be talking about my own career journey and them wanting to understand what I attributed my success to. And I realized that I was doing an incredible disservice by talking about my journey without ever talking about my why. Mm. like the drive that I have came from somewhere. I I need you to understand that. And yes, there's some things innately. And so when it was when I started sharing that story that I kept getting asked to do it more and more. So I was asked to speak for our clients, um, employee resource groups Mm. to start to share that story. It became so well known. And that's when I realized, one, I love talking about it now. I realize the power of being vulnerable around being authentic, around the trust that it builds in sharing much more of who I am and no longer needing to, I've never lied, I'm not one who will lie, but like cover or hide certain parts of me. And so that was when the shift came to um, becoming a professional public speaker. And by professional, I mean started getting paid for doing it, mm. not just doing it as part of my, my day job, if you will. Yeah. And so I started to leverage what I'd learned in business because I still talk about business topics, but infused with my own personal experiences. And then there are some that are much more personal around the story of resilience in my yeah. childhood and bringing that forward. And so now it's something that I do very regularly, although I'm, I've been asked whether I would want to do it full time and give up. A corporate career and the board work that I do? And the answer is no. I think if it became my full-time job and it's all I did, uh, I wouldn't enjoy it nearly as much. Yeah.
0: And you'd be back to flying around and traveling too all the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. Um, especially because you are now combining all your years of experience with your childhood and the trauma there and showing people that this is where I came from. This is how I use it. And this is how I've I've moved forward. But just like in any discipline, any industry, people like to see themselves and the people they look up to and respect. And especially because you've achieved a level of success, you know how important that is, right? And so some people will be like, well, I have to hide this past that I have. I have to hide my sexuality. I have to hide that I had an alcoholic mother or I, I came through this trauma and I was in the foster system. We know that those are your strengths. Like those are a a source of strength for you and they help move you forward. So talk to me about your books. What are your new books about?
1: Ah, So um, why, first of all, is there two? And that's because I couldn't decide between two topics and I'm not very good at being idle. So I'm like, let's do them both. Um,
0: (laughs) Again, shocker.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So the first one is uh, on personal branding and that will be coming out early in 2024. And a little bit of where you were just talking about, Diana, around how I share my story and my public speaking. So I attribute a significant part of my career success, to yes to resilience, yes to my experience, but a big part of it has been around the brand that I've built for myself. Mm-hmm. And what I think people don't rec- really recognize, I mean, there's it's a filtered world we live in now, uh, and but people want to connect and do business with people they like and they trust. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they wanna do business with. And, um, what breeds trust is again, vulnerability and authenticity, but it's the unique stories and experiences. And so yes, I'm known quite well around some of the adversity that I've, um, I've experienced and come through, that's part of my brand. I'm known for being, I, I have another nickname as the Turnaround Queen, I've been through 18 mergers and acquisitions and I'm um, very good at turning around distressed businesses, so that would be another, Oh wow! but also around who I am as a leader. I am unwavering in ethics, integrity, and the values that I hold, uh, and also extremely committed to what I refer to as whole human leadership, which is part of the second book, which is around leadership and culture and the right kind of environments we create. But the, I'm known for this brand, so I'm often recruited directly for other companies or sought after to come and speak, whether it's in the media or on stages to speak on these things because I've built a really strong brand, brand foundationally that it represents the whole human that I am. Yeah. And so I'm writing, uh, it's in final editing now, that first one on personal branding to help people figure that out. Um, what stories do I tell? What makes me uniquely different from others who do what I do? And also thinking about legacy and impact. So for me, the my brand is also built on what do I want to be known for? And it's not going to be around the... Sales and revenue and profitability have driven for the companies I've worked for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about the kind of human I am and what I've done for the, the world. Yes. So that's the first book, and the second one, as I said, is on you know leadership and culture. I've spent all of my career trying to find um, the kind of leader that I would have wanted to work for. Not not that I haven't worked for some some great leaders that I've learned from, but none were my word um, trade, trademarked whole human leader. I evolved from the Iron Maiden to the Turtle, which is actually the nickname my best friend gave me. Tough exterior, I can handle a lot, but I am incredibly soft on the inside. You know, this little marshmallow. And so, how how do you how do you bridge that as a as a leader? How do you create the right kind of environment and culture for your team? So yeah. I'm um, sharing that with 30 plus years of experience, um, and talking to other leaders, and also sharing some of the personal anecdotes I've made some pretty significant failures as well that I've learned from. And the Iron Maiden for me is a failure. Like that's not, I think I had, people liked me, some, sure. Um, But I think they um, probably feared me more than wanted to follow me through the proverbial fire. So I Uh had to learn how to be, show up in a very different way and bring in the EQ that was sitting back there, but I just was afraid to show.
0: Yeah. I love that you have learned that it's your vulnerability. That is actually one of your best strengths and not just having, you know, as Brene Brown says, we armor up and we go out into the world and, but it's our vulnerability that we get to take that armor off and then we have to, we get to have authentic conversations with people and that's when actually when you grow and that's when you start actually kind of living with your arms open wide, right? Which is, you know, my, that's my goal is that's how I want to live my life, right? So I know that you're really busy and you're you've got the books that you're still working on but I'm sure you have other things that you still that are either in the works or that you want to achieve like talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, so I am I'm currently in transition from a C-suite perspective. I left my last company in the summer and I'm looking for the next CEO, COO type um, role, ideally with a smaller company. I spent the last 15 years working for massive organizations, and I've learned how to be really adept at navigating um, through the matrix. Uh, But um, I'd rather take all of that experience, the mergers and acquisitions, uh, and bring that into a smaller organization. Danny, my husband, you know, joked when he first met me. He's like, "You're never going to be happy until like you are the CEO." And then I was of a small company, but um, I want to do that on a larger scale. So there, there's lots of talks right now for yeah. that. I also sit uh, on two, well, one board, and then I joined an, um, a not-for-profit. So I always want to sit on at least one not-for-profit that's connected to um, something that's really meaningful for me. Um, the not-for-profit is um, HelpUsAdopt.org. And so being a person who's adopted and knowing that they're extremely committed to trying increasing the number of grants they give to LGBT families. So I'm the only queer board member and I'm really committed to working with their team on how do we find a way um, to give more grants uh, to the LGBT community as well. So, mm. so that's a new one over the last couple of months. So I'm investing my, my time there. Uh, and then continue to do as many speaking engagements as make sense with my yeah. schedule. Um, I get—I prefer to do it in person. I hated during COVID times that it all moved to Zoom. Yeah. You just don't have this kind I of energy. Did not work for me either uh, yeah. at all. And um, and someday you said future aspirations have been really clear with my children. No one is making me a grandmother anytime soon. <laughs> but I, I said I was a young mother by choice. Let's not make me a young grandmother. But I, I absolutely have aspirations of. Um, being a grandmother someday, and what, is, what yeah. does that look like? And my legacy is you know, to leave this world in a better place than when I came yeah. into it, whether that's workplaces, communities, or the world at large. So being yeah. an advocate for underrepresented people, period, um, and helping people learn that they can overcome trauma and adversity by sharing my own story, those are all ways that um, I hope to, uh, yeah. to do more.
0: So, Victoria, if you had to say one thing to somebody, what is the one piece of advice you would give me so that I can move through my past and I can achieve what you've achieved?
1: I think we are more than our circumstances. Absolutely. The challenges and the obstacles, we all have choice in terms of how we're gonna respond to those. And we cannot always control what does come our way, trauma, adversity, um, obstacles, but we can choose how we respond to that and take action. So I often refer to people um, around thinking about that, you know, you're the CEO of you, your life, your career, your brand, whatever it is. And, um, and even if you've come from very difficult beginning uh, uh, or, or any challenge for that matter, um, that you can chart your own course. You're the pilot of what that looks like Um, and you can completely control that outcome um, and be using my phrases that I sign off with unstoppable.
0: I'm glad that you've been able to step back a little bit and start, um, you know, kind of diversifying. It's not all business now. Just, even having the the thought that someday you might be a grandmother, <laughs> and that it's like not off the you know off yeah. the table, uh, I think this is a great spot for us to like uh, to end the story. Um, uh, uh, I liked that um, I got to know more about you. We've we've talked quite a bit over the last couple of days, but uh, some of the stories that you shared today, I, I I feel honored that you shared them with us. I appreciate that. Um, I wish you the best in everything.
1: Thank you, Diana.
0: Yeah, this was awesome. Thank I hope you, you had you. a good time. Yeah. Thank except you. for freezing today. Awesome. Do you have a story that needs to be told and you'd like to be on the show? Then send us an email at contact at mybestfell.tv. If we think it's a good fit, we'll reach out. Today's episode of My Best Fell was created by Director of Photography, Erin Castillo. Editor, Jennifer C. Bird. Sound, Brian Binning. Gaffer, Billy Miller. And makeup by Marissa Loya.